Hello and welcome to our first edition of 2023 of the Centopia podcast and radio show. I am Amanda um, and I'm here with two of our regulars, Gary and Simon. Gary, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Amanda. Thanks for having me back. Have you been? I mean, it's a it's a, a huge month of lots of films out uh, since it's award season. Have you been at the cinema? Uh, I have, yes. Um, I took a little bit of a break from writing for a couple of weeks, just over Christmas. But uh, yeah, I've thrown myself right back into it. I've been to see like three films in the last month. Uh, sorry, three films in the last week. And um, yeah, looking forward to Babylon and The Fablemans coming out. So yeah, properly okay. into award season now. Right. And uh, Simon, how about you? Hi, uh, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I, I think we've got a really strong crop of films to discuss. Uh, on the show this week uh, and like Gary I'm excited by the films that I've heard so much about from America finally coming out over mm-hmm. here it seems like we've been waiting forever for for Tar and the Fablemans Babylon yeah was Babylon um is Babylon not out in the UK yet then no it's out soon right yeah I think it's out on the 20th Right. Okay. Yeah. It's out here. I think it was out here on the 26th or something like that. I've yet to see it because I've yet to go to, but I'm going to make sure I get to uh, some, some classic multiplex American cinemas before I leave and come back to the UK. But yes, uh, we have a really, I feel like these films are quite profound. The films were, um, some of them intense, but the ones that we're reviewing. So I'm really excited to to review these today as well. We'll be reviewing Tar, uh, directed by Todd Fields, and we'll also be reviewing Ennis Main, Mark Jenkins' second feature film. And um, we're reviewing St. Omer by Alice Diop and EO uh, by Jerzy Skolomowski. I also sat down with the director of the short, the Scottish short, Too Rough, uh, Sean Leonard, and had a lovely conversation. That film has done exceptionally well. Uh, It's a really great film, but it's done really well on the festival circuit, winning the Scottish BAFTA, winning the BIFA, and being shortlisted for the, uh, the, the bigger BAFTAs. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll sit down and talk about that film as well. So that's our show. Well, it is award season and uh, Golden Globes are just behind us. Those who like, uh, I know Jim's not here on the show, so I can say what I want <laughs> about the award season and we'll be continuing to chat through it all. But yeah, let's Globes do our Oscar show. picks while Jim's not here. <laughs> exactly. Um, but Tar took a major um, uh, award at the Golden Globes and Gary Tar's just about to come out in the UK. It's been out in the US for a while and Gary's going to tell us what this film's all about. Yes. So, um, yeah, like you said, Kate Blanchett just won the Golden Globe for it. She's a um, uh, favourite right now to win the Oscar for it. Um, and it's the third feature, um, third feature film from director Todd Field. Um, stars Kate Blanchett as a celebrated conductor um when we the the film starts um with like a a talk about her success in her career and she seems to um she's obsessed i guess with uh with control and she seems to be on top of everything um 
And as the film moves on, we start to see the unraveling of her character and some of the breakdowns in her relationships professionally and personally. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the, the brief synopsis. Don't want to say too much, but, um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this film. Um, I think it's just got a great, um, it's got a great style to it. It's very much a film about control. Um, and I think that comes through in the directing from Todd Field. And um, yeah, what, what did you think about it? Yeah, I, 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 I loved it. I, I was fully immersed, um, fully immersed in the film. It, it takes a while to get going in that it spends a lot of time with the character of Lydia Tarr and you're going through her day to day and you're seeing her, you know, talk to the orchestra, do uh, administrative things around the orchestra and prepare for this this big recording of uh, Mailer she's going to do. Um, so it takes a while and it slowly immerses you in the life of Lydia Tarr who Kate Blanchett plays as as charming, as authoritative, and as a terrible person. Um, and so you end up really immersed in the life of this person that you find quite unpleasant uh, and who keeps doing terrible things. But you you feel some degree of kind of complex sympathy and empathy towards her. Um, and and I, it was really interesting to me how the film made you feel that that complex mix of empathy and disgust um even while she's going through her downfall even while she's she's being taken down for her abu abuse of power so it, it 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 was quite complex and i really liked the film for that I, I liked i think cinema at its best can make you feel those complex things and and this did it really well for me yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I think that point that you just made, Simon, about it sort of being slow to start. I I I definitely had high expectations about this film, and then kind of and felt like the first thirty. They're not they were not tedious, but I'm I'm also by the way, um, a little known fact. I used to be in an orchestra, or like a youth orchestra, for like oh, fifteen wow. years. So what did you um, play? Uh, violin and so mm -hmm. I definitely knew the like um it wasn't the concert master but the one right next to that you know at one point so I, I felt that tension then too and knowing like you know just sort of like the rhythm of a, an orchestra practice and stuff is, is a bit tedious for me in general just because it reminds me of my childhood um but I but also these sort of names um and also worked with Carnegie Hall for a while so a lot of these like big names are kind of brought up into like the in the whole like industry of you know of of concert you know of mm. of the or orchestra in, in New York and stuff so I thought I really loved how they played with that where it's like I think I read some people you know the people were asking this question is this person real like it, it acted almost like a biopic of a film of yeah a real there, there's a sort of full-on interview with the New Yorker at the start and then there's like a lecture on music theory conducting theory yeah, and it, you really bought into that this is a real character and, you know, and that mm -hmm. this character lives within these other characters. And um, I really, really, Austin Todd Field, I have to say, like, really love Little Children. It's a very uncomfortable film, but I, I've always really enjoyed that film um, for, yeah, for its idiosyncrasies and and this feel, parts of it that make you feel really uncomfortable. And yet you're just kind of with these characters who are obviously not great character like there's one character in particular is very not not you know not a 
a, a pleasant character. And that kind of comes out in this story where mm. you know, your main protagonist is very challenging. You know, you, you really captivating in some ways, but obviously a terrible person. So, and I also just felt like, I think that there's a theme along with a lot of our films we'll be talking about of horror almost in this. And I feel like there was a great deal of, like we talked about with Nanny last month about sort of feeling that person's like pressure and and pain through everything about the way the film was done. So I, I'm a particularly huge fan of Berlin and its architecture and the just the way that like even the 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 sets of you know her amazing apartment that she lives with her partner um you know is like this brutalist gorgeous place but it feels so cold and you know where, mm. as she's running and feeling sort of this pressure of like the world coming on to her you can really really feel it and this in the filmmaking and it's about the tension that that filmmaker has made and does an exceptional job with that yeah, I, I agree. I think like the there's subtleties in the way that it's like a slow fall from grace. And there there's clues there early on. Like I love that scene where she's um uh lecturing the students and then they bring up the sort of separating the art from the artist. Mm. Um and then you can kind of see that that's like the the, the first sign that maybe um she's not she's not the greatest person, but I didn't, I went in blind not knowing, like I hadn't seen a trailer, so I didn't know where it was going to go. Um, and I just, yeah, I just lo love that kind of um, descent that she goes on. And I feel like she, I guess like she conducts the people in her life in the same way that she conducts an orchestra where she's just like fully in control of everything that's going on. And even that comes across in the, in those running scenes, like, the, the first I think the first one is before things start going wrong for her and she just seems so composed and um sure of herself and then and by the end like where she's running you just feel that there's things are just um disintegrating a little bit for for her um I thought it was really really well played um by Kate Blanchett really strong performance um and yeah just talking about the the look of the film as well was great like the kind of chilly blues and greys at the beginning um like it was so it's like a clinical style to it and very precise um which kind of sums the character up um and how the how the film kind of changes uh visually um as as this kind of fall from grace happens so it was really interesting really well made yeah visually i think it's all very like you say Gary, it's very cold it's very controlled and that all reflects uh, the perspective of this one character, of Lydia Tarr, um, because her life is so controlled and so cold, like her, like you say, Amanda, beautiful Berlin apartment with, you know, this exposed concrete, just a big piano in the middle of one room. Um, beautiful, but you wouldn't want to live there. And in the same way, you know, Lydia Tarr's got this this enviable life that you wouldn't want to live in because uh, she's so terrible and she's brought it about through sort of abuse of power and um, I think you you mentioned the horror elements Amanda that's really interesting I hadn't actually considered it but thinking back there's so many like horror or horrific scenes um using kind of like horror conventions like you know shadow noises uh scurrying noises there's a scene where she follows a cellist into an abandoned building and can't find her and she's lost it's all dripping water there's 
shadowy footsteps. It's it's all very spooky. And there's there's at least one scene that I'm sure I didn't imagine where there is someone you can see someone in the background who shouldn't and cannot be there. I'll need to watch it again to check, but it was like seeing a ghost. It would, yeah, really, uh, really affecting. Um, yeah, there was definitely a kind of unnerving element to it. Um, yeah, around the scene with the uh, there's a scene where she goes goes in to check on this uh, um, elderly neighbor as well. It's an elderly, oh, yeah. um, which kind of gives you a glimpse into the humanity or lack thereof of Lydia Tarr. Mm. Um, yeah, fascinating. And I also just wanted to mention those like uh, scenes where she takes her kid to school. There's two key scenes, one in the beginning and one towards the end. And the the contrast between the two really like illustrates the the changing character throughout the film. Yeah. Um a scene as well where she's running and she hears a scream but she can't find the person who screamed. She sort of runs after the runs towards the scream, but can't find it. Unnerving stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's been a bit, obviously, controversy about this. I mean, I, one can imagine, um, you know, it's a, it's a very, like, specifically p- picking a gender of a woman, you know, mm. to play this uh, Me Too kind of character, as well as this discussion on... Um, on cancel culture I mean but I think it really does the I think what it really does well is kind of discuss cancel culture like in in a film in a way that like probably yeah it just feels really resonant right now um and I think um yeah I I don't know if you guys had any thought I mean I know that a somebody came out a a a well-known um music you know musical conductor came out uh to to reprimand and to to make comment about this film being horrific um but I didn't know if you had any thoughts about that in terms of how it feels after coming you know there's been quite a lot of trying attempts to have conversations around cancel culture and or the me too movement since we talked about the worst person in the world as well trying to kind of like be one of those post me too kind of conversational films Mm -hmm. and whether or not that worked or not um didn't know if you guys wanted to comment on any of that yeah I, I saw some of it I saw some of this discussion just as I was going into the film actually so it was on my mind while I was watching it and I'd, I'd read about Marin Alsop this very accomplished uh, woman composer who who claimed the film is misogynistic uh, and uh, says that Lydia Tarr is based on her I'd read another female critic that I follow on Twitter uh, saying you know it's it's why hasn't this film been made about a man when there's so much male abuse in in kind of um entertainment in in music and i i just think i think you couldn't have made this film about a man and have it be complex in the same way that tar is i i think if it had been made with a man in lydia tar's role you wouldn't have the audience would not have been sympathetic with that character at all so there wouldn't have been a route for that complex empathy that the film wants that the film needs to evoke i think if it were a man abuser the film would become overwhelmed as like oh this is a louis ck film or this is a harvey weinstein film and the character wouldn't have been human to people he would only have been a monster so you couldn't have had the complexity that the film has if it were man. 
and I think it would have it would it wouldn't have been able to comment on cancel culture in the same way because it would have been tied up with kind of culture war uh rigmarole it, it would have been too dominated by people's um not prejudices as such but people's preconceptions coming into the film that would have prevented them from getting immersed in the character in the same way and i i'm thinking of um annette as we talk about sort of cancel culture films because i think that film tried to do this but it did it very uh heavy-handedly in a way that didn't work for me i didn't like annette at all whereas this is more delicate it's more considered and ultimately more forceful for me yeah i agree and i, th I think it's um yeah, I think it's interesting to see a, a, a sort of post-Me to cancel culture film with a different, um, yeah, I guess it's like a, coming at it from an angle that we've not really seen before. And I think it's hugely important that uh, these stories be told. Um, yeah, thinking the ones that I've seen, well, again, like you mentioned Harvey Weinstein, like there's a, a spate of Harvey Weinstein movies from like The Assistant from a couple of years ago was heavily linked to being around Harvey Weinstein and then of course uh, she said recently as well which I thought was really well made um but yeah. yeah I think like it really worked for me again like going into this film all I knew was that um I, I, I was aware of the awards buzz around Kate Blanchett but I didn't even know it was a cancel culture me too movie until I was until until I was in the movie so um so yeah I guess like it's kind of avoided that discourse, the early discourse that it might have had if it was about a, a man. Yeah, and I think it needs to for, for the complexity that it's discussing. I, I wouldn't say it's a cancel culture film. I'd say it's about power. It's about control. It's about uh, abuse, but it's not mixed up with the, the kind of preconceptions that if it would have been a man, it, it would have been about. Um it, it's interesting that you never really see the victim in this film. Um, and, and because the film is entirely from Tar's perspective, it, it's like uh, Lydia never sees the victim. Lydia clearly tries to think about her as little as possible. Um, and the film shows that by not showing her, you know, it's, and, it's. And all that information is hidden. So, I mean, I yeah. think that's like, and it's deliberate as if like, we never really get the like, we don't get to see what was written on the book or what mm -hmm. the emails say. So we have actually no idea. We know that some, it's like a foregone conclusion that Lydia is a, is a horrible person mm -hmm. or has done these activities or these activities, you know, these things have happened by the way that that person is treating people around, around her, yeah. but we never actually get the details of all of that um you know uh, uh, and so that's hidden where i mean i think it's like gary you kind of mentioned the assistant and the assistant oftentimes was much more around the other person's perspective obviously and you know very much that the the boss was not really ever kind of you know seen but mm -hmm. then this is it's the actually the the ac action has been hidden from us and we're entirely in Lydia's world, which is a very confused, you know, like, you know, very kind of psychologically like traumatic and the traumatic, you know, or, or intense sort of world, mm. which then brings in these kinds of 
horror elements that we're mentioning. And also just particularly even at the end when like this great embellished, wonderful life that this person lives, then, you know, kind of seems to be long, like a long period of time. And then at one point, everything just happens like really fast. And it, then things are just completely switched, switched over and changed. And I thought that was a really interesting way on how they dealt with the pacing of the yeah. film. Yeah. You know? Think things happen so fast once it starts, once Lydia starts to lose control. And it felt like we don't see those scenes because Lydia doesn't want to see them. Lydia is trying to forget them. So we just don't see it. We, we only see what she can accept, what she can choose to see. And it's an interesting comment on, on how abusers uh, can think and compartmentalize that their, their kind of abuse and, and still go on doing it. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Cause I'm glad we never had any of these, like, I don't know, I think some other, films or filmmakers might have had some flashback sequences where you yeah totally saw that and I totally agree that it, it benefited the film by by not showing that and then even in even towards the end of the film um she still maintains an element of uh control even if it's a different it's at a very different level to, to at the beginning but she's still we're we are seeing uh scenes that she can that she can uh, that she can control basically yeah is is all about control and power um it's fascinating in how these uh friendships and relationships with our peers um transform mm. yeah and it is it is i don't want to talk about the end too much but it is sad at the end like when we've seen lydia kind of at the height of her powers it is powerful it's a powerful performance from Kate blanchett and it it feels visceral and good to see to see her conducting and so at the end it's to not see that or to see where she ends up is is sad but it's a complex catharsis yeah because of how conflicted we are and she is right and also brings out that you know age-old kind of question which i think is part of this the whole narrative of the artist versus the you know the the person yeah and um and certainly that was you know present throughout the whole piece and uh yeah in different parts of the narrative as well you know um which is probably yeah which is probably why you have someone when you have somebody like Kate Blanchett play who's exceptional except I mean and and well deserving of of any awards that you know she wins um you know play this character it's a really hard and complicated thing because it's a villain and yet it's an it's an incredible performance and it's there is empathy there because of that you know and because it's from her perspective mm -hmm. yeah I, I have to assume the Oscars in the bag for for Clayton Blanchett well, who who else? We don't we don't know. I guess I don't know the other contenders. I wasn't paying attention too much of um, who else was nominated against her in the Golden on the Globes. on the Golden Globes. It was uh, Anna de Armas for Blonde, mm. uh, Viola Davis for The Woman King, uh, Olivia Coleman, Empire of Light, and Michelle Williams for The Fablemans. So I've only seen Blonde out of those. But yeah, I, I think Kate Blanchett's performance is better here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the only good thing about Blonde, I think we did the and we did review Blonde a few months ago, was Anna's performance. But, <laughs> like, um, but yeah, <laughs> but you know, 
Kate's got it and got a good film in here as well. So um, yeah, I mean, I think Tar is uh, well worth watching. It's a complicated film. It's intense. Um, and uh, I might see it again. Um, but yeah, it's well worth watching. Um, so give it a look. We recommend you too. All right, so the next film we're going to talk about is Innes Main, Mark Jenkins' second uh, film, feature film. Yeah, Centopia is a big fan of Mark Jenkins. We um, we previously interviewed him. Uh, Jim previously interviewed him on on the show, and also uh, we showed Bait as part of Cinema on the Shore this year. Um, so he's a huge huge fan of his. But what is this film like, Simon? Tell us about tell us about it. Yeah, so Ennis Main is. Mark Jenkins' second feature film after Bait. Uh, like Bait, it's filmed with a 1970s 16mm camera uh, without sound. It doesn't record sound while you're doing things, so you have to design and then post-sync the sound afterwards. Uh, so it, it creates this kind of unique look of, um, of, of, of a 1970s film that has somehow been released in the present day. Uh, Ennis Maine is Cornish for Stone Island, and the film is set on uh, an island off the Cornish coast where a volunteer, uh, a botanist, undertakes the same ritual each and every day. So Mary Woodvine plays the volunteer. Every day she gets up, she goes to uh, a cliff on the island, looks at a flower, takes a temperature reading. She uh, goes up the coast a bit, drops a rock into a hole down a, an old mine shaft then she goes back home turns on the generator has a cup of tea and records her observations and we see that a few times she does that a few times she does this same ritual each and every day um but as the film progresses things become a little stranger on the island uh i don't want to say too much but it, it seems like time starts to overlap. There's people where people maybe aren't supposed to be. It's 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 a strange experience. It's it's a strange experience and a, a strange film. I'm I'm interested to hear uh, your thoughts. Um, yeah, it was a film that I was fascinated by. Um, it's really weird and engaging, but like I don't know if I can say that I wholly enjoyed it I don't know if enjoying it is the right word just because it is like it's quite a unique experience and I definitely appreciate the artistry of it and it's interesting what you say about the the camera that he used um and adding the sound afterwards because um yeah it really definitely works it definitely uh, is effective in coming across as a old movie like mm -hmm. while I was watching it um a couple of days ago my wife had walked into the room and said like of what year was this made? Are you watching another old film? And I was like, this is actually a new film, but just made it look old. So it definitely worked in that respect. Um, it's very much a mood piece. It's very atmospheric. Um, I really like the use of colour. I feel like the colours popped mm. so much more than uh, than you would expect, maybe, I guess, for a, a film like that that's quite 
I don't know, there's a bleakness to it, but then like the reds were very red and the blues of our eyes were very blue. Um, the reds and the yellows are very, are yeah. very, the reds and the yellows pop and they're also kind of plot critical in, in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. What do you think of it, Amanda? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. The color, I mean, to see a film like that shot with that stock and the way that Mark Jenkins um, does stuff, I mean, Bait in black and white was incredible. I mean, like, it's just a stunning, stunning film. And this color is just, it's, it. I don't know if they're, you know, it's extra with the grading or whatnot, but the red and the blue of her eyes and everything about that is just, I mean, it's, one of the more beautiful films I've watched. And, and I, again, as a non-horror person, I was like, how am I going to deal with this? Because I love <laughs> Mark Jenkins, but I really don't really, but the, it, 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 it's a bit not horror, it's horror, but it's not, you know, it wasn't, it's kind of like the nanny situation for me. It wasn't too scary. It was, you know, it was less scary than, than I expected it to be, but very creepy um and definitely my kind of film in general so like from the very moment it's 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 my kind of film because it's very sort of abstract and not sort of there's not much talking and I mean almost like a Groundhog Day-ish thing going on you know mm. like every single day like and the pacing is quite slow and um but I think there's so much there you know and I think um I think there's so much on the dialogue about um, I think someone called this like folk horror, you know, about like traditional um, Cornish culture, you know, being lost and sort of being in the land and, and so, you know, sort of made me think a lot about this project that we did with archive film around Scotland, and just the sort of the traditions and the fact that the land speaks so much history. And I think that's what this film sort of talks about in terms of like what, what you're sort of seeing between this person kind of being by themselves, but not being by themselves, not feeling by themselves on this island. Um, so I, I really loved it. I also heard um, randomly, I just read something on Twitter that uh, Agnes Varda's Daguerreotypes was, which is one of my favorite films, was like an inspiration for this. And I can, I can sort of see that. The other thing I'd like to say is that it's almost, I mean, the close-ups of this film like are so haunting and uh, there's just the way that this film is shot is just it's like there's so much tension and so little happening that I am I'm just blown I, I was blown away by every shot and it and it really gets me to watch it something like that it's just a classic good good filmmaking um but with it with with Mark Jenkins own way on it it's you know there's obviously inspirations but he's definitely his own filmmaker, you know? And I yeah. like, I really appreciate that. Yeah. It, it's, it's something of a transcendent experience. It, it's so visual and it's so the audio is so uh, thought out and, and you know, obviously designed. It's, it's, it, it, it's really meditative in a way you sort of fall into a trance while you're watching it. Um, which it, I think speaks to the kind of folky horrorness of it. it. It's all about the landscape. Uh, it's all about how history is imbued in the landscape and the landscape uh, remembers things and it brings those things up uh, sort of from the soil again, from the, from the earth, from the water. And the landscape remembers the people that have been there before, the, the, the lives that have passed uh, over time. Yep. Um... I, I, I was at a preview screening where uh, Mark Jenkins did a Q&A 
uh, afterwards and and he talked about uh, the kind of folk horror influences the kind of horror influences he said that uh, people had referred to Bates as a horror film so he thought mm. well I might as well just make a horror film then for my next for my next project um he, he talked about folk horror as well being tied to uh England and how folk horror is, is often rooted in in Englishness um so thinking of the the kind of three big folk horror films the Wicker Man Blood on Satan's Claw and uh the Witchfinder General all were kind of rooted in this Englishness even though The Wicker Man was filmed in Scotland. Um, but he talked about how he'd seen Kayla Janice's documentary, uh, Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched, which talks about folk horror being in different places. Folk is just people. And so all kinds of people have different folk traditions wherever they're from. And so you get different folk horrors. And so he wanted to make a folk horror embedded in Cornwall, in Cornish culture which is obviously very important to him. So that's what he set out to do, I think. And and yeah, I, I think it's really effective. Um, a film that it reminded me of um, was David Lowry's A Ghost Story. It's interesting what you said about how the, uh, the landscape and the location is presented in that way, that the landscape remembers the history. So I really liked the way that the past started bleeding into the present and you weren't sure what was um what was old and what was new or like what was real and what was not like mm -hmm. it really plays with that really um beautifully I thought um and yeah I I I would recommend it to anybody yeah, yeah I mean it's it's a film that I mean I think with bait like you know I would have recommended bait to a lot of people as well but it is a film that like it's got it's going to con like I think even Mark Kermode was like talking about it confuse it will confuse people um in some in some aspects I wouldn't not everybody will get it I don't or, or I mean maybe not get it but like it is what I mean but they might get yeah. it but they might not like it yeah you know I, mean? I I don't think it's to everyone's taste uh, it's it's not very dialogue. There's not much dialogue at all. It's it's mostly kind of experiential. It's it's mostly audio and visual, um, but no dialogue as such. He said, uh, Mark at the Q and A said he'd written the script in three days, <laughs> and he said that at previous Q and As, and there's never a gasp from the audience. People aren't surprised <laughs> that it only took three days to write because it's so sparse. Um, did he say how long it took to make the film because it's interesting because it took him and i know a lot of that was um and I, i'm not completely on the history of it but i do feel like it took him like 16 years or something crazy to make bait hmm. um partially because people didn't you know like buy into it and then yeah. now you know bait got such huge sensation that it was a quick and easy thing you know i think enos main was in can you know like so mm. it was it's it, you know people are taking it, it him seriously now um but i wonder how long because then it's like it's quite soon after bait it seems like you know yeah to, to it, was, it was it was obviously quicker to make but uh it was sort of made during lockdowns during mm. covid lockdowns so that slowed things up a bit and his process just just takes a while like filming right. all filming everything and then going into the sound design portion because all the sound has to be post-synced. So you have to uh, re-record every line. You have to redesign every sound effect. You have to do all the Foley. Um, 
and he does all that sound design himself or yeah. he, he supervises it with the help of his his crew but it, it's all designed down to the letter um he told a story of having to post sync a few of the lines uh at least twice because in the film uh she's filling her generator with petrol the the can says petrol on the side but the script had said diesel throughout so anytime in the film you see her saying uh the word petrol you don't see her lips like it's a shot of the back of her head or something because in reality she was saying diesel interesting yeah i noticed it said score by uh you know mark jenkin as well so i didn't yeah i mean very much fully involved in every aspect of it of course yeah it definitely feels like a passion project in that way that it feels like he's um he's got his uh paws all over every aspect of the film and um it's interesting what you said about that it's uh it was all made during lockdown because it feels like a bit of a um reflection on lockdown isolation and like yeah. those uh, those routine the routines like that are established throughout the movie like the the making the cup of tea the taking the notes every day kind of feels the same like there's not much change from day to day and I feel like that that's quite interesting to um in that way it reminded me a little of um the um Charlotte Ramplin and Tom Courtney movie 45 years where you just kind of get to like settle into their day-to-day rhythms um so yeah I enjoyed that aspect of it or the shining (laughs) (laughs) yeah the shining and groundhog day for me (laughs) just at the very beginning um I thought of you Simon because of your whole yeah time loop but a little bit different but you know (laughs) yeah it feels like time is looping on itself it feels like time is getting mixed up like yeah, she she does seem to be living the same day again and again and again. So Ina's main is out, um, and right now in the UK, I'm not sure when it will show up in the US, but um, take a look at it. Um, we think it's incredible. So the third film we're going to review is Saint Omer, um, Alice Diop, uh, a documentary filmmaker. This is Diop's first narrative feature film, which is a is about a true story basically. Um, so it's a little bit about Alice's experience, um, sort of over see, seeing a case in um, France where somebody, well, Fabienne Cabou was a Senegalese woman who was accused of killing her infant daughter. And this film kind of takes the same um, story through the lens of a, a woman named Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence is, is accused of killing her daughter and actually admits to it. And Rama, it's the, one of the main characters, has gone down to this town, Saint-Omer, to see, to see the uh, trial. And so the com- so the film is very much around the trial, around the different um, advocates uh, who are in the trial, around the judge, around the testimony of the main character uh, Lawrence, and around Rama, who is sort of observing this. And uh, Rama the, um, her, herself is having is 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 pregnant 
um, and sort of thinking about, but also, um, you know, about her relationship with her mother and her relationship with her pregnancy and this, and this case and, um, and, and how this, uh, this affects her life and how, how it changes her and thinks about living in France versus being from Senegal. What did you guys think of this film? I per- per- personally, when we were talking about a film like Innes Main, which has no dialogue, this film is like one thing to mention is very, very entirely focused <laughs> on actually the dialogue and language. There's very little action outside of the courtroom. In fact, a lot of the shots are quite literally on one person for a good like 35 minutes, you know? Um, and I thought that was really, really interesting by the way. Um, but also I, I, I thought it was actually really, really special to kind of focus on the language and what was said in this film. So I, I, I really liked that. And I'll say that and then let you guys let let me know what you think about the rest of the film. Yeah, that's an interesting contrast between uh, Ennis Main and and this in that Ennis Main is very visual. And this is, like you say, very dialogue heavy. And and I loved Ennis Main and was colder on this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it is somewhat precisely that reason in that it, it does a lot of telling and less showing. Um, mm. so I, I think to go back to the other film, Tar, I, I think Tar strikes a good balance here where there are lengthy dialogue scenes, but they're very dynamic. The camera is moving and, and changing and we're getting close-ups and, uh, even for long single shot scenes, like the one in the lecture theater in Tar, the camera is always moving. It's always in motion. Whereas here it is, um, long, long shots of, of of someone talking, of a back and forth in a courtroom, uh, focused on the defendant, and it is interesting to see the processes of of institutional justice put on film like this in all their long drawn out processes. Um, but I I sort of found it like being on an actual jury. People say it's quite boring, and and I found it quite it wasn't dynamic enough to really engage me despite Mm -hmm. the uh interesting uh nature of the crime in quotes being discussed and the kind of structural reasons behind it all it it just it felt like um it's interesting that you say the director is a documentary director because i felt like it could have worked better if it had been a straight documentary And, and so we could have had uh more uh, commentary more intersp- interspersing of of different voices and um, there's there's interesting moments that break through this this kind of um trial sameness that there's moments that break through when the the main character and the defendant stare at each other and they they, they share a long look and there's a little smile that was really interesting and emotional but there's they're only little moments for me, I I wasn't that engaged, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. It does feel like you're watching a real uh, trial, and I at times forgot about Rama's element of the story because I was mm. so drawn into the court case. And it feels like the audience becomes. It feels like you become a jury member while you're watching it. And uh, yeah, it's no surprise that Alice Diop is a documentary filmmaker in the way that it's shot. Just, um, yeah, a static camera 
um, very almost anti-stylized in the way, like the way that she approaches it. Um, but then there is that balance between uh, Rama and her, um, her her story that kind of almost. I mean, the film starts and ends with her, but her story kind of takes a backseat for most of it. Um, and I think I was more, yeah, I was more engaged in the court case itself than than Rama's story. Um, but yeah, I I found it really interesting and. Yeah, there's some parts where um, there, there's a there's a part where the the fourth wall gets broken and we are addressed almost as if uh, we are a member of the jury. And I thought that was a really interesting way to approach that kind of courtroom drama style. Right, that's when the um, the 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 uh, lawyer for the defense lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. Then yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think that maybe that's why I did like it. Um, it's because I am documentary filmmaker, and I like mm -hmm. like four and a half hour Frederick Weissman films. Um, I think that <laughs> the, the thing the thing that gets me is that it's playing with form, and and I think that's something where like a lot of times when we talk about documentary films, we're playing with form in terms of adding narrative and in there and stuff like that. And this is this is playing with the idea that like you can have a static shot, you know, and literally get something out of it and you get something really powerful out of it. Um, and I, and that's a lot to do with that perform those performances. And I think also sort of making us understandings of those motivations. Like I think the main, the main story, Lawrence, right. What is this person's motivation, you know, for doing something or for at least admitting to do something and then obviously to be to to be on trial and and to spend two hours you know discussing it I mean there's so much com complex stuff going on and there's complex complex stuff around identity here you know in terms of I mean there's quite a lot of sort of looking at what the judge the, the judge is actually particularly a, a sympathetic judge you know mm. and so you, and 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 so is you know the 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 defense lawyer of course but i mean i think with that plea it sort of really does and that you know and then you go back to like the audience members i.e the you know jury or rama so who are crying and you know i i think there's something really interesting about you know asking people to listen and and also and and playing with people's patience which we didn't have to do with tar, for example. I mean, we did with, you know, like, as you said, at the beginning, this sort of a slow pace, but you've got so much going on in terms of set and design and movement yeah. and camera and stuff like that. This you're really having to kind of sit with, you know, the situation, which is feels very Frederick, like feels very documentary. And that's why I sort of liked that it was playing with that and appreciated that. Yeah. You're, you're sort of sitting and listening to, the the defendant's Lawrence's life story, um, and and seeing how she gets to that point, you know, what are the structural factors of of uh, immigration and how black people are treated in France uh, that have led her to this point, um, how is she embedded in these structures that 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 make it not as straightforward a story as uh, it first appears, or as the protesters outside the courtroom see. Um, uh, yeah, I find it was an interesting kind of uh, contrast between the style of the film being very kind of grounded in um, 
social realism. It was very procedural. Um, and then that kind of juxtaposes um, quite interestingly with the, um, the reasoning almost, or it's almost, I don't want to say justification, but the, like how Lawrence is talking about um, the death of her daughter and um, what she's saying are things that are quite otherworldly or talking about sorcery. Um, and I feel like that kind of language balances quite, it's, it's quite amusing almost, like how, it, how that language balances with the very grounded in humanity, uh, like the grounded in realism nature of the style of the film. Um, and I, I feel like the it doesn't get too much screen time, but the guy who plays the uh, barrister um, for the prosecution, I looked him up, his name's Robert Cantarella, and he he gets a little bit fed up with this at one point and just kind of like shouts that this is not a stage on the theater. This is a court of law. Mm. And uh, I feel like that was quite a, quite a um, yeah, just like a, a great line. And it might be, it was definitely, I'll definitely speak to any audience members that are getting a little bit frustrated with the, with the plot. So a mixed review here. I think you guys didn't like it as much maybe as I did. I think it grew on me for sure. And I think, again, the end of the film really, I thought, I felt was quite powerful. And, um, you know, and it was a different feel than the first two films, but also intense as well. So we're going on really profound films in this, uh, in this, this January. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely a, a deep, um, deep and meaningful start to the year. So, yeah, yeah it, it felt quietly devastating yeah. um but for me it was just buried under a bit too much too much trudge maybe mm -hmm. that's the point maybe that's what the filmmaker wanted yeah to, to... i i liked it i'm kind of i'm I, i'm somewhere in the middle i think between simon mm. and, and yourself amanda like i'm yeah definitely uh, uh definitely an interesting one and definitely well made and well acted I think France have submitted it for uh, Best International Feature at the Oscars, coming back to awards. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right. And um, it's it's out currently. I mean, I was surprised it was out in Altamont Springs in, in Florida. So I don't know. It's, it's always shocking to me when I see a, like an AMC, um, you know, a f like French film or something. But um, yeah, I think it's worth seeing. Um, and um Yep, check it out. Yeah, it's it's out in the uh, US right now and in the UK, it's coming out on the 3rd of February. The final film we're going to review is EO. Um, it's about a donkey and um, tell us why what goes on with this film uh simon I, it's it's much it's it it, it was uh, i think believe it was in can it was mm -hmm. much talked about and um i was much awaiting watching this film so what is this film all about yeah it won the uh, jury prize at can and poland have submitted it as their entry for for best international feature at the oscars this year um and it's 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 an interesting and powerful film, I thought. Um, it's directed by Jerzy Skomalowski, uh, and it, it joins a recent trend of films from the perspective of 
uh, an animal, uh, in this case from a donkey. So in that way, it reminded me of uh, Gunda, directed mm-hmm. by Viktor Kozlovsky, which is a film about a pig, and Andre Arnold's Cow, which yeah. is a film about a cow. Um, but this this follows a donkey called Eo. Eo is a circus donkey, um, and his life in the circus is disrupted by the new animal rights laws in Poland. So led by uh, Wrocław, Poland have uh, started to ban the use of circus animals, banning the use of animals for circus entertainment. So Eo is taken from the circus, and he begins his new life, and thus begins a journey across across Poland and into Italy, sort of across Europe, visiting uh, riding stables, farms, football grounds, cemeteries, abattoirs, the woods, uh, a mansion. Um, and, and we follow Eo, we follow his life, we see through his eyes as he experiences all of this. It, it's really a film about leading us into the kind of subjectivity of EO and and pushing us into his mind and thinking about how EO lives and experiences the world and ultimately how animals live and experience the world. Uh, It also takes us through um, Poland's past and Poland's present. He, He wanders into a forest at one point through a forgotten and overgrown Jewish cemetery. There are gravestones with Hebrew so we're reminded of of the Holocaust. We're reminded of again when we see animals going into these kind of mechanized abattoirs, mechanized slaughter machines. Um, and it, it's sort of it's it's both a meditation on Eo as as a creature, as an animal, as a being, and thinking about modern Europe and and what is going on in modern Europe. What kind of rivalries and changes are taking place? Uh, across the continent I, I thought it was really interesting and really affecting um and you really get into the perspective of an animal which is an interesting thing for cinema to to try to do try to push you to do yeah that was really i mean i think that's a really good summary on exactly what it is because mm. it is like through this perspective of a donkey and unlike unlike what like Gunda, I think, and I could be wrong with Gunda because I I don't remember Gunda as well as I remember Cow because we reviewed Cow for um for 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 the show. Sure. Um, we had this discussion around how anthropomorphized you know Andrea Arnold made the cow, you know, because it was yeah. very much kind of like that was a documentary we were following a cow and then this one there's really clearly like a tear coming from the you know donkey and like you know I mean I I, I've been hanging out with a puppy for like a month and a half and I I know like I know they feel things you know and or whatnot but I think some sometimes there was like this you know putting a human feelings onto onto the onto the donkey way more than you know than than what would potentially actually happen in real life but I think it worked really well and the way that you've just explained what this film is really about you know it's really about Poland or it's really about the history and it's really about you know animal rights as well um mm-hmm. it was similarly to um you know the cow I really came back out of this very sad and very I'm you know like very um more motivated for you know 
being very careful on my sort of animal sort of rights and stuff like that, because you just don't think about this stuff. And then films like this really put that, put it into perspective for you. And and, and in a way that's quite beautiful and sad at the same time. And, and I was, yeah, it was very sad at the end um, (laughs) enough to say, but very beautiful too. And that's just like, you know, parts where they're like, it could be his perspective, but it also could just be this very random, like strobe red light sort of, scene i mean so the, just the shots of this it's like a like this insane i don't know like james Turrell like music video kind of yeah. thing you know which it's just there, there's these so... drone yeah these drone shots in red over this forest landscape um and it just turns everything eerie and 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 covered in this red fog this red mist you know, it turns this stream into like a, it looks like a river of blood because of all the red. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, really beautiful. And, and enough to, that you never really, I mean, you have this one character, obviously the donkey and then you have, but at the very beginning, you kind of have this love affair between the donkey and the circus sort of like person that, you know, trainer or whatnot, you know, sort of performer woman that he was with, he was with. But other than that, you really don't have, any sort of sim, you know, person who continues to go through the thing. So the fact that you can kind of stay captivated through this story, through, you know, uh, just the, just, you know, following the tales of, of the donkey is, is quite has to do with all the other stuff that's going on and all the ways that kind of like this episodic, um, what do you like picaresque story via donkey just one thing to note though which i'm not i mean admittedly as a francophile i've not seen this film and i think after seeing this film which was hard i've heard that like um this film is based on very very heavily based on a bresson film oh Oh, yeah i read that Mm -hmm. which i've actually not seen but i hear is more depressing (laughs) than this one so i might not make it through that one for a while give that a miss yeah Um, myself a couple years yeah there's not many human characters at all and and what characters there are sort of drift into eo's life and they're often kind of played for comedy or comical characters um but i knew isabelle huppert appeared in the film at one point so i was like saying to my wife at one point like when is isabelle huppert gonna appear and give this donkey (laughs) its forever home (laughs) when are they gonna you know be together and the donkey will be happy and we'll all be happy as he goes (laughs) off with isabelle huppert uh which does not happen but but i think you have you have a good point about gunder and cow being documentaries and eo eo sort of slaps a narrative on top and so the narrative does somewhat require uh anthropomorphizing the donkey in in some way like you say you see little tears in in close-up eos looking at horses in the field and it's implied dreaming of running with his his fellow animals through through open landscapes he's he's not taking a carrot that means he's sad he's off his food it, it's it does anthropomorphize him a bit but ultimately not as much as it could have i mm. thought so it it does put this narrative on it, which helps to pull you in to the the kind of subjectivity, the consciousness of EO and the other animals. But it's still very sparse. Like dialogue is very minimal. Um, I found the film mostly used visual language to communicate, like yeah. close-ups with EO, uh, close-ups of 
I, I made a note. There were horses, frogs, spiders, owls, wolves, foxes, bats, tropical fish, pigs, cows, and even at one point a little robot that looks a bit like yeah. a dog or a cat. Um, <laughs> what was that robot doing? I didn't. I I, I maybe lost like like where we were in the world. Um, I don't know. That's after yeah. EO gets involved with those football hooligans. All oh, right. So I didn't know if it was like a veterinary robot or something. Mm. I wasn't sure. But either way, you're sort of getting into this perspective of all these animals and even this animalistic robot and, and constructing motives and desires for for those creatures yourself, which is kind of distancing you from the human. Um, yeah. I, I also wanted to mention the film's soundtrack. Yeah. I think it's got a really interesting soundscape. Um, and the film's composer, Pavel Mikitian, creates this really evocative soundtrack that sort of uh, anthropomorphizes Eo in a way, like the music is sad when he's supposed to be sad. Uh, it's it's more happy and joyful when he's supposed to be happy, when he's running around the circus, which he enjoys being at. Um, but it's a great soundtrack. It won the soundtrack award at Cannes as well. And mm. I, I've actually been listening to it on Spotify more or less nonstop because it's good. It's been good writing music, to be honest. <laughs> Oh, good. Well, it probably will show up on the EHFM uh, radio show then for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's got like it's got all of these elements that make it really, um, really fascinating. Um, and it's it's a new you know, it's not it's not a make not a remake of, you know, one of the best films, one of the best films of the of, of all time. It's a, it's its own film. And um, mm. I do think it. Yeah. I, the only thing is I, I kept kind of wanting the the donkey to stand still and stay, like, not keep escaping because it only it only got worse and worse it seemed like every time you know like, to the yeah. next if next you stop spot. wandering off a human might care for you might might brush you and you might yeah. feel better yeah I think that first one when he wandered off of like the farm or something like that then it was like well you're never gonna see your you know your lady yeah. love again <laughs> <laughs> I I did have a little maybe a little concern or a question that I wanted to discuss in that I thought uh, while the film was on, you know, I'm thinking about exploitation of animals. I'm thinking about using animals for entertainment. And yeah. th there's clearly a disclaimer at the end of the film about the welfare of the animals featured. It's clear that the production cares about the beings involved um, and, and looked after them. EO himself is played by uh, mainly two donkeys, but six donkeys total. So, you know, they're not stressing this donkey out. I, I, I did wonder about, while I was watching the film, about um, the use of animals for entertainment. And this is ultimately kind of entertainment. Mm -hmm. It's a different degree than a circus, perhaps. But, but, but did, do you see a difference between that kind of circus entertainment, which is wrong, and this kind of film? Well, that's interesting. Um, I didn't think about that at all other than, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've not really, I know that like, there's certainly like, I, I saw that very clearly that like there was, and, and I suppose I didn't expect because the emphasis of the film was so much on animal rights mm -hmm. that I would, I, I sort of assumed that those, that this would, the care of the animals were, you know, very much a, a priority in the film. Yeah. Um, but 
that's a really good point to think about it was something that I, you know, maybe I'm not investigated enough on how animals are treated in terms of in, you know, on sets and in these situations and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I'm certainly, yeah, yeah. I'm not suggesting that, I'm not suggesting that they were treated badly on this film at all. They seem to have been treated very well. Um, they seem to be happy. I'm just think it just got me thinking the film in general about sort of animal exploitation in general and and how we treat animals and and how we use them for entertainment purposes um, yeah and also making film... human you know sort of if it's not an animation yeah. then you know we're making these human sort of impressions about them and this is exactly what this film was was doing on exactly on... I, I think the film wants to raise those questions wants to make you think about that kind of thing yeah of course um yeah I'm just thinking about Free Willy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, poor Free Willy. Yeah, that, I know. That, that poor whale. <laughs> Terrible. Anyway, um, great, great. Uh, yeah, it, it it met my expectations. I was very. I actually really love the poster too. So I'm like really obsessed with like graphic design and posters and stuff like that as well. And I thought this poster was like fantastic. So if I get my hands on that, if anyone knows where I can. Um, I thought it was, it's a really interesting, uh, it grabbed me from the can sort of, or whenever I started to see it, you know, being like promoted. Um, and it's, a yeah, it's a really, a really interesting film. And, uh, I think one of those that I was looking forward to seeing and, um, was not disappointed to have seen. Yeah. Really visually interesting. Um, the, the promotional material, like you say, is very good. I, I saw a trailer for it before Rashomon at the Glasgow film fair, the, and that shot of EO crossing a bridge in front of these cascading waterfalls yeah. is just very arresting. It's it's really really grabbed me. It made me want to see it. So yeah, yeah. sort it out. Well, you have to probably have some good marketing if for like for a film about a donkey. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and good timing wise as well. I don't know if we could have like tar we could have lasted i don't know like two and a half hours on it or something but yeah I, I think it uses its full length um, <laughs> very effectively but yeah uh, like um gary was saying just before we just before we started talking that th this is the time of the donkey on film with donkeys in uh, the bunches of inner sharon and in in triangle of sadness so yeah, and, yeah and gary's very right <laughs> Colin even thanked Jenny the donkey in his speech oh, on yes. the Golden Globes as well. <laughs> um, so I, I was very, uh, yeah, I was very sad about both films, and I'm, I'm, I'm very much considering, uh, yeah, like I don't know, just I, I have a, a great affinity towards donkeys now. <laughs> Thanks yeah, to like I say, watching it, watching it with my wife, and they want a donkey now they wanted a donkey <laughs> after, after a few after a few scenes amazing well um that's eo and uh, yeah so eo is also out on february 3rd in the the uk so uh check it out and let us know what you think
Welcome back. Um, I'm here with Sean Leonad, who is the director of Too Rough, a Scottish short film. Um, that's incredible. Uh, we'll put a link uh, down to the trailer um, and on this uh, show. Uh, but Sean, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your journey. I know your film was a short circuit uh, film. Um, and uh, just how did you get to make this film? And um, it's incredible, by the way. I really, really, really loved watching it a couple times. So, Oh, thanks. Well, we actually pitched this film in 2019 to the old funding um, organization in Scotland and Scottish film. And they, they, they didn't really like it and they uh, didn't give us the funding. And I sort of wanted to then pitch a different project um, the next year. But my producer was like, no, I really like this film. And the funding body has completely changed and there's the execs are a lot different. It's a lot of young women actually who um, are incredible and turned out to be a lot more open to different uh, stories than the same ones that seem to be coming out in Scottish film. And they really liked the project and I fell back in love with it again and we developed it and we made it. Yes. Uh, so I didn't know that you had pitched it for it's the Scottish Film Talent Network then is what yes. you were telling me. So you had, um, but you've been working in film for quite some time. You had a BBC social that went pretty big as well. So what kind of drew you to making films? Well, if I really, I've been asked this a lot recently and I had to mm -hmm. actually because I think really it was probably The Wizard of Oz, which I guess is an important film for a lot of people. In fact, I still have the original videotape just above me right now um, in the cabinet. And I think I was so young when I first saw it that I didn't realise it was all made up. And then as soon as I realised that human beings had made this and not gods or <laughs> it hadn't naturally um, appeared, um, I just became obsessed with how on earth they could have done that the mystery, which is quite amazing even though it's a film from the 30s that it's so um, mind-boggling how they've managed to pull it off and I just wanted to figure out, I think it was the the practical elements of filmmaking, the craft I just wanted to know how it was done and but underneath that was a real obsession with writing stories, so it was a, it was a strong combination for me you know you're i mean the film it feels very intense and this 15 16 minutes that it is um incredibly emotional but very personal and i saw i think i read somewhere that some this is a very personal film for you is that correct yeah i mean it's almost entirely autobiographical uh, everything that's happened in the film i've experienced but not all at the same time which this character does um so <laughs> i had it in I had it in doses, but he has to endure it all in, in these 15 minutes. So, yeah, it was very personal film, but also uh, that's easier for me to write because I don't have to do as much imagining, if that makes sense. Yeah, and um, is this your first short? I mean, you did the, the, the BBC social, so this is your second short then, right? I've done quite a lot of short form okay. films, but this is the first one that was my first fully funded narrative short, okay. uh, which was a lovely relief following, because a lot of the films I made before were for 
digital platforms, they were really fast paced and fun to make, hard to make, but fun. But this one was a lot slower in pace and I was able to just breathe and make something more cinematic. Yeah. I mean, again, that anything from the acting to the way that it was shot, I mean, and also the music, it's like, it's, it, it's so incredible that you have such a, like a short period of time and yet it's quite, and it's not, you know, a horror film, but there's, there's so much like tension in there. Um, you know, where is, uh, where were your inspirations in terms of, um, you know, filmmakers or just music? I mean, how, like that, that I think really for me, the, the, like the soundscape, I I'm always obsessed with sort of that when I hear a great soundscape and I just felt like that just, just brought in this emotion to this film that, that I, that I really loved. Well, inspiration for the soundscape really was just from reality and what I know Glasgow sounds like. And there's just something melancholy about that distant ice cream van sound and children playing and dogs barking and neighbours uh, in the world of Glasgow on the other side of this little, you can't really see much of the world outside of this room that the film is set in. So you just hear what's on the outside. And um, yeah, I really like soundscapes as well. I, th I think it's a... Uh, half of the film the sound and the storytelling and the setting and the poetry of sound that brings like um it brings other worlds and elements into it yeah um budget budget wise i know that short circuit gives you a very finite budget to work with yeah i do think and it is a short film but i do think it, the the budget looks really really high in this i mean our the budget high the quality value looks like it was really really well done did you work within that budget did you get more funding did it take a little did it take longer than i mean all of these things i'm i'm, I'm curious about no, we worked within that 25,000 budget and um, it was actually really difficult. The money doesn't, that sort of money doesn't go very far. So it was just up against the clock because I think, well, I've never worked on a project where I've had the luxury of time. So it's always just incessantly marching against the clock. I think everyone that's worked on being on a film set knows that. So that's where the difficulties came in and also COVID took, uh, I think we got COVID support funding to deal with all of the impossible regulations that came because of that. But uh, yeah, I think if you have small ideas or not small ideas, big ideas, but a small scale of story, mm -hmm. then you're much more able to put the money into at making that small scale look incredible instead of, I don't know, spending your budget on massive production values and for, yeah. for high concept ideas and short films. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Um, so I take it because it was during COVID, most of your crew was all Glasgow based or were they from different parts in your cast as well? Yeah, most of them were Glasgow based, um, which is nice because I know that a lot of work should a lot more work should come to Scotland, I think. So it was nice to work with a crew that also understood the world of the story. And it wasn't just Glasgow. I'm not um not so nationalistic that I need <laughs> Scottish <laughs> the whole crew to be Scottish. In fact, I'd love as diverse a crew as possible. But 
yeah, everyone really understood the world that we were going into when telling this story. Yeah. How do you, I mean, I know you are uh, born and raised in Glasgow, but how do you feel? Um, we're about to actually just to do a networking event in Glasgow for the first time. We're, ba- we're mostly based in Edinburgh, but how do you feel the Glasgow like filmmaking scene is? Uh, do you think it's small, but like really up and coming? <laughs> well, I, when I left school, I set up a, a filmmaking collective called Young Filmmakers Glasgow, which is long been buried but for the time it was um we used to meet every week in coffee shops anyone could come and we were sort of rivaling the Glasgow film crew which was a similar collective but we were supposed to be the young cool ones <laughs> uh, um the amount of people that passed through the doors and through the meetings that I met every kind of person was incredible and um even if we don't see a lot of work coming out of the scene there's a lot of work happening and there's a lot of people going through the trials um, of filmmaking and yeah I just hope that all of that work can begin to be reflected in in what we see and what the the rest of the world sees as well not just us. Yeah no that's really interesting I didn't know that but that's that's fantastic Um, I love yeah collectives and uh, so your film has done exceptionally well, as it should. Um, and uh, it's been and like, what, 70 film festivals and nominated and won BAFTAs and, and whatnot. Um, how has that journey been for you? I mean, and uh, been have you been traveling a lot or? Yeah, I have been traveling a lot last year. Traveled myself to death nearly, I think. <laughs> um, South by Southwest was probably the highlight. It was mm. absolutely phenomenal. And the best part of it all is definitely been meeting directors and filmmakers I really respect because um, I, in fact, went to see Warshaw, uh, which was a short that played at Live by Southwest by my friend Dania, but at the time I hadn't met her and it just blew my mind. It's been shortlisted uh, or shortlisted for the Oscar this year and seeing her speak in the CUNY, I was just like, oh, she's a genius. I wish I could be her friend. And then I was like, oh my God, actually, I could probably be her friend because I'm here as a director as well. Oh. And then we did become friends. And okay. so being able to um, stand alongside amazing directors has been amazing. And the awards are, you know, lo- lovely, but I don't know, I'm, I'm, trained to be extremely anxious and pessimistic so I, <laughs> awards don't really um I don't think I let enough praise in I'm trying to work on that with my therapist yes well I I understand I feel that too and um but you, you should and you should be quite quite proud I I think what's nice is that also perhaps have you heard a lot of feedback from all the different places because I think you're your film talks on so many important things like and it's an LGBTQ film. It's, you know, I know it was in the Scottish mental health. Um, you know, you're dealing with so many important, um, so many important topics that are really, really hard to to talk about. And I'm sure the film brings stuff out in your audience as well. Have you talked to your audience members around their responses? Uh, it felt like I was the only person any of this stuff had ever happened to. And, and in fact, that's kind of one of the reasons that, wanted to write about it because even in my friendships I felt like I had this my friends knew I'd had a bit of you know trauma in my 
childhood, but they didn't really know what exactly how it felt. And I always just almost mourned that they didn't know. And I wanted them to know not to traumatize them as well, but just so the I think it's it's nice for communities and friends to know where each other has come from and I would love to know where my friends have come from as well and this was a way to reveal that and and then yeah like the amount of people that in the audience were crying or told me they knew exactly how it felt Um, and the important thing to note here is that if you're revisiting a trauma like that, I think cinema is actually a very safe place to do it. It's it's much safer than um, the trauma coming at you in real life or when you're not expecting it. But when you sit down to watch a film, as much as as I suppose trigger warnings are really important, cinema is a safe place to revisit um, trauma and pain. And it has to be done because the more you treat your trauma like a, a monster that has to be suppressed and hidden, the more ferocious I think it becomes. So I think um, it's been lovely to connect with people that, that share that that background. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't even think about that, but I, that's just such a lovely way to say that, you know, cinema is such a safe space for that. And I know I get quite emotional, especially on planes when I watch films, but, you know, it's not just always a dark, you know, black box kind of room, but like, you know, if you're even in your room and and watching this as I watched your film and, you know, and and, and my room on a computer, it's a very, very like, and it's a great emotional place to deal with these kinds of things. And, and when it's done as well as you did, um, it's it's really powerful. So thank you so much for taking your um, time. Uh, where and I obviously the this is general last question, but I, I did read a little bit that you are working on a feature film coming up. Is it as autobiographical as this one is, or is it very different? Um, tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. Yeah, I was actually working on it a minute before I came to chat with you, and I'll be going straight back to it. Um, it is autobiographical, but it's also a psychological horror. So um, it's about a gay couple that fall in love, and as they fall in love, they notice that their relationship is being evoked as a supernatural entity. And it's very beautiful at first, wonderful, but as the relationship spirals out of control, as most of them do, <laughs> um, the entity becomes very angry and malevolent. So I think I'm, it's autobiographical, but I'm trying to take feelings that I've had and terrors that I've had in relationships and use horror to um, express, show, to demonstrate them. So, yeah, that's a little bit of it. Is horror one of your favorite genres to watch? And have you? is there certain films that you that you look to and stuff? Yeah, I absolutely love horror. And especially because it's so kind of rarely done well these days. But we know it can be phenom- phenomenal as a genre. Um, I love The Babadook, um, St. Maud. These horror films that take really personal dramas and 
just bring them to the next level. Because I think being, I don't know, I'm I'm afraid a lot of the time by life and I always have been. And so there's something sort of liberating about actively going to be terrified, but <laughs> enjoying it, you know? So, so yeah. I'm, I'm afraid a lot of the time and afraid of horror, which is why it's never been my favorite genre, but I'm getting more, <laughs> more comfortable as I get older. Um, but I just actually saw, we just reviewed this film, Nanny, that was, on, I think, currently on Prime UK. And I thought that was a really interesting personal horror, like a way that, you know, emotional horror um, or internal struggles come out in a horror film. And I thought that was really, really great film as well. Um, thank, congratulations on all of your wins, but you're also your new, um, uh, is it BAFTA nomination as well, correct? Uh, well, we'll find out if we're nominated on the 19th. We're currently shortlisted or longlisted or some kind of list. We're on uh, a list. A list, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, well, you, you, it's very well deserved, and I hope it gets to the next list, and I hope it wins. But, uh, but thanks, thanks again, and um, good luck to you on on your next project as well. Oh no, thanks for having me. It's been lovely. Okay, well that that's our show a huge thank you to sean um for for coming on as well and huge thanks to gary and simon um what are you uh, there's tons of films as we said they're coming out right now in the uk uh and that we're about to embark upon the sundance is going to be out and then there's going to be uh well there's going to be the oscar nominations and um and glasgow film festival so what's what's on your radar and excitement to see in terms of films uh yeah i i'm excited by the the sort of current crop of awards films that are coming through uh steadily getting released in the uk and i want to see the fablemans the new steven spielberg film it's kind of a, a semi-autobiographical uh film about how he fell in love with cinema i believe um maybe Babylon I have some reservations about it but should be interesting to see and um like you say I'm looking forward to I'm going to be covering Glasgow Film Festival and they're going to be releasing the program for that fairly soon so I'm looking forward to that um I'll also mention uh in 2023 I'm doing a new project where I'm aiming to review every film that I see this year with a review where the word count matches the number of minutes long the film is so for uh tar we end up with a moderately long review uh, and for ennis main it was quite a short review uh, but that's at reviews per minute dot simon com. so do check that out if you want to great we'll put that in the in the um yeah in the uh listing of oh, the great. show thank you <laughs> yeah i'll definitely check that out um and yeah there's so much coming out um and um yeah like like simon said the big cinema releases of the month will be babylon and and fablemans but yeah I've, i'm playing catch up a little bit as well with the awards movies because i noticed that um argentina in 1985 mm-hmm. which is another um um film that i think is going to be nominated for best international film that's available on amazon prime and i still haven't seen rrr which is mm-hmm. uh, um, oh yeah, me neither. 
so that's that's on Netflix. Um, so yeah, I'm going to try and tick those off in the next couple of weeks as well. Oh, I keep seeing trailers for um, Coriada's new film. Uh, Broker. Broker, thank you. Yeah. Which looks really interesting. So I'm looking forward to that too. Uh, and I think I need to see uh, Megan at some point. I need to see that little AI doll dancing around. Yeah, I'm unsure whether I'm going to see Megan or not. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I just recently, I, just a couple of days ago, saw Triangle of Sadness, which feels like oh, yeah. we were talking about months ago, but I, I managed to catch a cinema screening of that before it left. And um, uh, yeah, check that oh, out as well. That's quite an intense film to see in in the cinema. Yeah, I, yeah, it is. It, it it must have been. I didn't see in the cinema. I saw it as a screener. Um, mm-hmm. But I watched uh, White Lotus and found it was really interesting how like similar um, the like the themes are in terms of what what watched like binged White Lotus during the holidays, and uh, and how the themes are with like and also the music actually of the Square, which is his 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 film before mm-hmm. Triangle of Sadness. Um, so I thought that was really really interesting that like the similarities between Austin stuff and um you know the the current um you know winners of of all the Emmys in terms of you know, Emmys and Golden Globes of of you know TV series or or you know I guess that's like whatever they call it like a short series or or, or something yeah, like that yeah. um, prestige TV yeah but Triangle Sadness was really I think we talked about it a couple of months ago if you missed it but um it's definitely a, a film that I've been thinking a lot about uh, and obviously watching White Lotus thinking more about again um, in terms of, uh, um, but these films that we reviewed today, uh, I think they're all up for something or, or should be. Uh, I think they were, they're, they're all quite, quite fascinating. Um, I don't know if Ines Main will get to the Oscars, but it should, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um but you know this is a it was a really great uh group of films so we hope that you check them all out and um looking forward to seeing you both in the future if not at glasgow film festival on the next show super thank you thanks for having me